Hi, everyone, and welcome to What Would My Shrink Say, a podcast where you get inside the heads of a couple psychologists and see life through their eyes. You'll never be the same. Nick, I've got a question for you. Shoot. As a psychologist who practices therapy, what are two things you wish people generally knew about psychology um, as they came into your office or in general? Um, so one thing, how about I start with one and then you can do one after. And Sounds good. We'll, uh, we'll go back and forth. So one thing that comes up a lot um, early on in therapy, which is pretty understandable, people come in and they're, they're in an upsetting situation or stretch of life, usually, uh, when people come into therapy. They're distressed. Distressed, yeah. Okay. Sure. Upset, scared, depressed, whatever it is. Um, one common habit that um, most people have that I think is pretty natural, I think we all um, grow up this way, but a lot of people are in the habit of thinking that some emotions, some feelings are bad, that it's bad to feel some things. Most likely because it's an unpleasant feeling or an emotion? Yeah. So an, uh, an unpleasant experience. Well, and it, yeah. And, and it's not just that it's unpleasant, but that people have sort of a moral attitude towards their feelings. Mm, what do you mean? So I'll, I'll give you an example of this. I, I had a client who um, came to see me because she had a lot of anxiety. She's having panic attacks almost every single day, really stressed out and just... Which are awful. Was Yeah. I mean, yeah. If you've ever been in a, an actual full-blown panic attack, it is... I mean, you think you're going to die. Right. Or go crazy. One of the two. Um, she was having these every single day she, and when she wasn't having panic attacks, she was constantly worried and sort of spun up and stressed out. Um, and as we talked more and more, I realized a, a big part of her stress and worry in her life was she had an elderly mother, um, who was kind of manipulative and controlling. So she lived in a home in the same city as my client, um, but would many, many times a day would do things like call and ask her daughter, my client, to bring her some of her favorite brand of chips that they didn't have at the home that she was living in. Lots of little errands. Yeah, you? tons of these little, most of which were not actually important. And my client knew that. She would say, you know, I don't really need to do this. So we kind of dug into that a little bit more. And I said, well, what's, you know, what's going on for you when you're, when you see your mom call and you pick up the phone and she asks you to do some trivial little um, errand for her, even though you've got, she had four or five kids. She was constantly running around doing her own stuff, having panic attacks, just really overwhelmed. And she somehow made time in her schedule to go pick up these special brand of chips and bring them to her mom. And, and so one thing we found out is when the first emotion she remembers feeling whenever her mom calls is actually anger. Like she feels frustrated and upset that she has to do this trivial, ridiculous thing. Makes sense. But the very next thing that runs through her mind is, oh my God, I can't believe I, I can't believe I feel this way towards my poor mom. Like I'm, I'm such a bad daughter. I, because, I can't believe I'm angry at because my mom. I feel angry okay. at my mom who's 90 something and just frail and sick and probably won't be around much longer. And I think on the one hand, that's not a, a totally unreasonable that's pretty intuitive. A lot, a lot of us 
maybe have been in similar situations like that. We find ourselves feeling something and we think I shouldn't be feeling this. This is bad. This is wrong that I'm feeling this way. Um, and, but I think that the key idea is that an emotion might feel bad. It might feel uncomfortable. It might feel uncomfortable to be angry at your mm-hmm. mom. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think it's a mistake to consider that as a morally wrong thing. Like I should not be feeling this way. And the, the really basic logic behind that is that across almost every kind of ethical or moral system I know of, you can't do something wrong if it's not under your control. Okay. Right. If you don't have control over something, how can you be at fault for it? That, that seems pretty, pretty basic. Hard to do, yeah. Right. Um, and by definition, uh, emotions are not things we have direct control over. You, ca- you can't just turn up your happiness dial or turn down your anxiety lever. Right. right? Like, wouldn't right. that be nice if or, we could? <laughs> I'm just going to fall in love with this person. Yeah, yeah. right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so if emotions are things we don't have direct control over, you can't, lo- just logically speaking, you can't be guilty of a certain emotion. It can't, Mm -hmm. it can't, you can't, you having that emotion is not something you decided to do. And therefore you can't be, it can't be bad in a moral sense. The emotion itself. The emotion itself. Does that make, does that make some sense? So now you you might be saying, well, you're just splitting hairs. Like what, who cares? You know? Well, but I guess the fact that she's mad at her mother Mm -hmm. is a bad thing, right? You're not supposed to be mad at your mother. That's what she's saying. The fact that she feels mad is bad. Okay. It's wrong. It makes it's 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 it makes her a bad daughter. Right. So she's she's experiencing that anger and then saying because I feel this mm-hmm. way, I'm bad. Yep. Okay. And then it so if she thinks being angry is bad, if that's true in her mind, that mm-hmm. means she needs to do something about it. Mm-hmm. So she needs to try and not be angry. Okay. Right. In in her mind, if, Don't you, be if angry. you follow that yeah. logic, like she has to try really hard not to be angry. Right. And the problem is one of the ways that she has gotten in the habit of avoiding getting out of being angry is by kind of putting herself down. She gets into this thought pattern of all the things she's doing wrong and all the ways she could be a better daughter and which leads to all the ways she could be a better spouse and a better parent and before she knows it it's 10 minutes later and her anxiety is through the roof so so it sounds like that initial like reaction to her anger as being bad Mm -hmm. leads to more and more judgments about herself yes which leads to tremendous anxiety gotcha and stress Mm -hmm. so it's it seems like a subtle thing the idea that we can't we we're not morally responsible for our emotions Mm mm-hmm but it's actually really important because if you believe that, you're going to end up doing things to try and change your emotions directly. Right. Which you cannot do and is only going to lead to a lot of negative outcomes for you probably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's just a, it's a really important thing to think about the next time, you know, you start to feel uh, an emotion and you, you notice yourself kind of judging yourself for feeling a certain way. Like it's, it's not okay that I feel angry or this is so dumb that I feel afraid in this moment. Mm, That's mm-hmm. another really common one, right? Or, or it's, this is ridiculous that I'm sad right now. Right. Um, check in with yourself on that. What, what do you do though? If you find yourself being angry with someone and you would prefer not to have that kind of reaction, mm-hmm. 
what do you do with it then? Well, I think the, the first thing to recognize is you don't have to do anything. Mm. Like it, it, it's common when we, you know, if you feel an uncomfortable emotion, maybe like fear or anger, it's usually when we feel something uncomfortable, our, our natural reaction is to try and do something about it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But again, it's the nature of emotions that you can't directly do anything about them. You can't directly control your emotions. You can't just make them go away. Right. Right. So you can often just pause and just watch what, what happens to my anger if I don't do anything. Does it last forever? Does it get, you know, exponentially worse? Does it stay the same for a little while and then start to decrease? And it's, it's amazing what happens to your emotions when you get over the idea that you have to do something about them right away. Yeah, it seems like allowing yourself to experience an emotion um, does, does wonders in uh, that experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, but an important point is you don't have to sit there for hours and just sit in anger indefinitely. <laughs> right, right? right. But for 30 seconds, you know, you feel angry and your first thought is, Ooh, it's bad that I'm feeling this way. Well, just hold off on that. And just what's it like to just be, what happens if you're just angry for a little while? Does, does anything, does it get worse? Do you feel, do you end up feeling awful? Um, and just, I, I would just encourage people do that little experiment. We're all in the habit of instantly trying to make our uncomfortable emotions go away, especially the ones that are not just uncomfortable, but we judge as bad, mm-hmm. right? Um, and oftentimes we really start to, oftentimes we get into a lot of ultimately unproductive and even painful habits as a result of trying to immediately get rid of or judge ourselves for certain emotions. I like that. That makes a lot of sense. Kind of allow your emotions to be what they are. And then react more in a mindful way um, in the expression of the emotion or whatever the task is at hand, but allowing the experience to be what it is. Yeah. All right. What do you got? You know, one thing that I see clients um, struggle with a lot and that I guess I wish more and more people were kind of um, more educated on is that... uh, they, it's important to look at the relationship you have with your thoughts. Um, and, and what I mean by this is that our, our thoughts are like internal, like hypotheses that we have about the external world a lot. What's a hypothesis? It's a guess. I mean, we're, we're making a guess as to how things work sometimes. And I see clients who struggle with, um, let's say, depression or anxiety, and they have lots of thoughts that they really feel are true that they are really locked on to. And um, those those thoughts definitely influence their emotional state. So, for, for example, someone with depression who um, struggles at work, let's say, because they are convinced that their coworkers don't like them. That's a thought that you're having, right? It, it's, a, it's a thought that you're, you're looking at, at different clues in the environment and you've derived this, this thought, People don't like me. Sure. Which I would call a hypothesis, right? Or a guess. Or a guess, yeah. yeah. And But a lot of people who have um, this kind of maladaptive relationship with their thoughts are locked onto them as if they're a reality. They're real. People don't like me, period. And so a, a lot of um, time that I spend with clients is actually looking at thoughts in a different way, um, really viewing them as those guesses, and um, are those guesses functional for them? Are, do they work? You know, does 
assuming that everybody doesn't like you, does that work for you? What kind of outcomes does that lead you to? Um, anxiety is the same way. Um, people, Wait a second. Can I play devil's advocate? Sure. Um, what if it's true though? What if it's true that everybody doesn't like me? Yeah. And you found that out after testing your hypothesis and you know people don't like you. Well, I don't know for sure, but I really feel like it's true. It really seems like it's true. Again, sounds like you have a great hypothesis that you would want to test, basically. And and let's say, for the sake of an argument, you, you experiment with that, and it seems that maybe there are some behaviors that you have that people don't like. It's a chance for you to work on those behaviors then. Um, but just to kind of attribute it to people don't like me, I don't know how functional and workable that is in your life, and I don't know what that kind of leads to in your in your day day to day life, I guess. And when you, when you say whether it's functional or not, what do you mean? What is it functional? Um, like I, I think it's true, but you're saying maybe that's not enough of a reason to to well, keep I'm on. Su- I'm suggesting that maybe that thought leads you to reject invitations to go to lunch, or maybe that thought leads you to isolate yourself and not join the rest of your coworkers at the at, in the break room. Or that believing that people don't like you um, causes you to isolate and stay home all day over a weekend. And um, that those behaviors might actually be responsible for your depression, um, not that people don't like you. Hmm. Does that make sense? So that my initial, that thought I had that nobody likes me, Mm -hmm. right? What you're saying is just because I have a thought doesn't mean it's necessarily capital T truth. That's exactly what I'm looking at it more as a a guess, even an educated guess is a lot better than just assuming it's true. Exactly. But I, but I find uh, it it appears to me that a lot of clients um, make this trade, their thoughts for reality, right? I'm going to, I'm going to believe this thing um, rather than really kind of test it find out, get actual data, um, experiment with more functional behaviors. I'm going to believe my thought over all of that. So I really don't think anyone in my office likes me. Um, I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure I'm 98% sure you're saying, even if there's only 2% there, even if you're hundred percent sure, get, test it out, test that guess out that hypothesis. So how, w- what would that look like though? How do I test out the idea that nobody likes me? You might ask coworkers, to meet you for lunch. You might ask coworkers to go out for a drink after work. You might um, talk to more, say hello to more coworkers, start conversations, see how they react. Um, those kind of experiments might be a good idea for you. And, and if you come back, you know, the following week and you say, everybody turned me down and some people laughed at me and said that I was a jerk, then we'll talk about what you might be doing there. But But I find a lot of people just kind of make these assumptions and have these thoughts and and they'll adhere to them religiously without ever kind of examining them or, or the impact that those thoughts have on their lives. I like that. So treat your thoughts more like guesses rather than truth. All right. What's your number two? Okay. My number two is, um, this is going to seem maybe a little specific, but, um, there's a kind of general principle to it. And it is that I think people often make the mistake of thinking of worry as an emotion, as a feeling. That worry is a feeling. Yeah. So, and and we say this, we say, I'm worried, Mm. meaning I feel really worried. 
And I, and that's understandable. I mean, we just, that's just part of our language. That's how we talk. It's one way of saying I'm sort of anxious or nervous or stressed. Right. But I think it's important to be careful about our language. Um, and really think about what we're saying when we're, when we're saying that. So I, one of the things I often try and clarify with people is that, um, wor- worry is actually something you do. I, I, I would argue it's a, it's a verb, right? Not a noun or an adjective. So because wor- worry is a type of thinking, right? what, what are you doing when you're worrying, right? What's a, what's a recent worry that you've had? Mm. It appears to me to be kind of looking into the future and um, like a stressful form of thought about might kind of occur that might be a bad outcome. Yeah. So sort of like imagining different things happening in the future. Right. And that's a kind of, you know, it's, it's almost like you're writing a story for yourself. Right. That just happens to be really negative. But the, the key idea here, though, is that worry is something we do. Not something we feel. Yeah, right. And so when we worry, we often end up feeling really anxious or really scared, right? Or really stressed. But it's important to realize that worry itself is an, is an action. Right? It's, a, it's a mental action. Well, this is interesting giving your number one item, which is if, if we remove it from the, the emotion column, that worry isn't an emotion, mm-hmm. that it's a behavior then do we have more control over it? Yeah, I think that's that's exactly the point. I think just like we make the mistake of thinking we can control things we can't control, like emotions, thinking you can just make your anger go away, um, we make kind of the reverse mistake where we think we don't have control over things we do have control over. Hmm. So you can't directly control your emotion, but we can control the way we think. If you're imagining all the terrible things that are going to happen when you get on stage and give your presentation right? That's something you're doing. You can't, however hard it may be, you can think about something else. Right. And, and that behavior of worry might actually be escalating your anxiety. Exactly. Right. But a lot of times we fall into the trap of saying things like, I was just so worried. As, As if, if it's a feeling. Worry just happened to you. I like, see. A, like an emotion does. It just sort of descended and hit you. And therefore, there's nothing you can do about it. And I was kind of trapped in it and couldn't control it. Right. Mm. And it's easy to literally get trapped in worry if you don't think of it as something you have control over. Mm-hmm. And it's not something you practice doing differently. Practice um, thinking in a different way. So kind of stopping worry and being more mindful of other things. Yeah. So in other words, if you're, let's say you, as part of your job, you every once, not often, but every once in a while, you have to give a big presentation. Mm-hmm. but you are terrified of public speaking, right? In the 15 minutes leading up to your presentation, you it may feel like you just start worrying, right? And if you go along with that, if you keep thinking of all the awful ways you're going to screw up and how you're going to get fired, and that's going to make you m- even more anxious than you already are. But if you if you just believe worry is something that just happens and we don't have any control over, you're kind of setting yourself up for being way more anxious than you need to be. Right. Right. But if you start to think about worry, not as a noun, this thing that just hits you, but as a verb, something you actually do, that allows you the opportunity to practice doing something else, Mm. to shift your attention away from all the horrible, awful things that could happen, which is pretty unproductive. 
um, and just leads to more anxiety and to shift your thinking to something else, which is very hard, but that's all the more reason we need to think about it as a behavior so that it's something we can practice and get better at. Mm -hmm. And and so to clarify, worry can start all of a sudden, right? If you're planning to give a speech, let's say, I mean, you could find yourself worrying, right? I'm worrying. Um, And so it might just start as you start considering, you know, what it's going to be like to give this speech. But once you catch yourself worrying and you realize I'm worrying right now, um, then you have more control because it's a behavior you're engaging in and you can change that behavior. Yeah. I sort of think of it like, ultimately I think about it like a habit, right? And just Mm. like you might, some people when they're, um, we all, I mean, a lot of us have, when we get kind of stressed or anxious, we have little like fidgety tendencies Mm -hmm. or like Mm -hmm. little ticks, like we might, um, a lot of people, uh, kind of twirl their hair and they may not notice it until either someone points it out or they eventually they do realize and just because they are gotten the habit of twirling their hair doesn't mean they can't stop twirling their hair once gotcha. it starts, mm-hmm. right? So we do actually have a lot of control over the way we think. But if you, in your language, if you think about and talk about worry as this thing that just happens to you, you're depriving yourself of the opportunity to treat it like what it really is, which is something you have a good amount of control over. Mm. So, I, I, it, again, this seems like maybe one of those nitpicky things, like is worry a noun or an adjective or a, or, or a verb? Mm-hmm. Um, and I would argue really strong it's a verb. It's an action. It's something we do. And being careful about thinking about it like that can actually be really helpful because it allows you to start gaining more control over something you do have control over, which is how you think. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I, I see this a lot with depression and rumination, right? It's, it's another behavior, um, that you can alter, that you can have an impact on, not something that just happens and and uh, that's it. There's no control over it. Right. Right. Good. I like so, it. yeah, th- w- thinking of um, worry as something you do, not something that happens to you. I like it. All right, what do you got for your last one? My last one, um, I have clients that come in and they have, they're, they're frustrated with maybe their inactivity, their um, current distress is related to some, um, goal that they have that they're not reaching. Um, and a lot of them will talk about self-esteem and self-discipline. And the way they talk about it is I need self-esteem in order to be able to tackle this goal, or I need self-discipline in order to tackle this goal. And they want me to tell them how to capture or create self-discipline or self-esteem. That's why we pay you the big bucks. Cool. <laughs> um, and, and it's well-deserved, let me tell you. Um, and so it's interesting as I, as I kind of do some walking through these ideas with clients um, that they've kind of painted themselves into a corner a little bit because self-esteem and self-discipline are interesting ideas that we have But if we look at them as things that we need to have in order to proceed, then we're stuck. What's, what's a specific example of this? Mm, Let's say I have a goal to work out more often, right? I want to go to the gym more often. Okay. And what I'm, what I'm encountering is that when I'm about to go to the gym, I kind of talk myself out of it and I tell myself, uh, I just don't have the self-discipline to go to the gym, to make myself go to the gym. 
And so what I need is some self-discipline and then I'll be able to go to the gym. Almost like you've got a fuel tank of self-discipline and if right. it's below a certain line, then you just can't get to the gym. Right. And I think this is a, a really popular way some people view self-esteem and self-discipline as if it's some kind of real substance that's stored somewhere in our bodies that that we have to have a certain amount of in order to engage in a behavior. The ironic thing is that in order to build self-esteem or self-discipline, it's through behavior and, and something that, we, that I'd call performance, performance accomplishment. So you forcing yourself to do something um, will actually build self-discipline, this construct of self-discipline. We don't wait for it to accumulate before we act. Does that make sense? So you're saying most people tend to think of self-esteem or self-discipline as a cause and going to the gym as an effect. And what you're saying is usually it's the other way around. Going to the gym is a cause that leads to this effect of higher self-esteem and self-discipline. Right, right. That through the course of choosing to go to the gym and really sometimes even forcing yourself to go to the gym, even though you don't want to, despite all temptation, basically not to, forcing yourself to go to the gym will actually start help will start building your self-discipline because self-discipline is basically your ability to force yourself to do things despite some temptation not to do that thing and so a lot of people you know come to therapy in a way looking for how do I build that self-discipline in order for um, for me to rely on it to go to the gym and I and I would suggest that it's the behavior of going to the gym, forcing yourself to go to the gym, that over time will make you more self-disciplined. I think this is a big part of why I think both of us probably think about ourselves as cognitive behavioral therapists. Because <laughs> right? yeah. it's, it's an acknowledgement that a big part of how we think and how we feel is the result of how we behave. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? We, we tend to think of those the other way around, that our behavior is based on how we think and how we feel, which is true to some extent. Sometimes, yeah. Um, but it's, it's good, as you're pointing out, it's good to remember that the opposite is also true. And, and, and almost, I would argue, almost more beneficial. That if you, can, um, if you can examine and choose behaviors that are based on your values, despite how you think and feel, you're, you're going to be better off. If, if, I can, if I can manage to choose to go to the gym three times a week, despite my thoughts to the contrary, despite my feelings and my um, sadness or frustration, if I can still choose to go to the gym, then I'm behaving in a way that's probably going to make me feel a lot better over time and, and enjoy my life a lot better over time. And so... I often kind of draw a formula on my whiteboard in my office and, and I ask my, my clients, you know, to, to, to account for as many variables as they can that go into making a choice, let's say to go to a gym, right? There's time, there's expense, there's uh, time away from family or friends or whatever that is. And then feelings also get in there and, we, and thoughts, right? And, and I think some of us wait the, you know, we, we put thoughts in the formula and we square it, you know, it's like thought squared basically. Um, and, and I believe we need to weight our feelings and thoughts a lot less in our, in our formulas. 
And so when we're talking about self-discipline, basically it means practicing kind of ignoring thoughts and feelings sometimes and choosing a behavior because we know it's going to be good for us. And that's what self-discipline is. You're a therapist telling people to ignore their thoughts and feelings. Defend yourself. You know, I constantly, (laughs) I do this a lot, Nick, and I encourage you to do the same. (laughs) Um, I think thoughts and feelings that aren't leading you to better outcomes in your life should be ignored. And I'll go, I'll go one step further and say, even if those thoughts and feelings are accurate, if they're not leading to better outcomes for you, I don't, I don't know why you'd want to listen to them. Amen, brother. (laughs) No (laughs) argument. No, but I I think that's a, it's a natural thing that sometimes we feel, um, we can feel, it feels disingenuous to go against how we feel. There's this kind of right. cult idea there that we need to be true to how we feel all the time. Yeah, and, and, but what that looks like if you're struggling with uh, depression, anxiety, is what we would call kind of mood-dependent behavior. So when you're depressed, you you feel like isolating. And ironically, that's going to make you feel worse. So in order to flex that muscle, to build that self-discipline of, hey, even when I feel bad, you know, I... I'm not going to cancel plans with my friends, you know, to go to dinner, even though I don't feel like it. Um, so to practice basically flexing that muscle of saying, no, I'm going to do what's good for me rather than what I feel. That's a good thing. That's a good muscle to build. Making your behaviors based on your values rather than your feelings. Values. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think values are probably where it's at to base your decision more on that than your current mood. Agree. Wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. Wow. I'm impressed. Now, I will put out a disclaimer that I think neither you or I are perfect at this. <laughs> Speak for yourself, Dad. <laughs> I know no, occasionally right. I make a mood-dependent decision I regret, but the idea is to help, I think, people realize you know, that, that these things are um, self-discipline, self-esteem are built through behavior, not some magic trick that your therapist is going to have for you to, to kind of inspire you that these things are, are built over time by, by small successes. So often when a client needs to build that muscle, self-discipline, self-esteem, um, we often set goals for them to behave in certain ways. And, and that's how self-esteem and self-discipline are built. Good stuff. Good stuff.